Hey everyone, welcome to the sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont's location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live a life driven by faith. This series, we will be talking about how God prepares His people. Many times we get so focused on the big, incredible moments in life that we tend to overlook the little moments that shaped those incredible ones. Jeff Mannion says that a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. The same can be said when reflecting on our faith and spiritual life. God often works through the day-to-day to prepare His people for the remarkable things in life. Join us for the next few weeks as we look at Scripture and see how God truly prepares His people. It was a number of years ago that I was sitting in the chapel building at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and our guest speaker that morning was Dr. Tony Evans from Dallas, Texas. And some of you may know Tony Evans. He's on the radio a lot. And he was speaking there in our little chapel service, and he said something. He gave an example. He gave an example that I'll never forget. He said this. He said, when I'm walking through downtown Dallas, and for you and for me, when we are walking through downtown Boston, And he said, when I come upon a construction site, I can tell you how tall they're going to build the building by how deep they dig the hole. He said, when I come upon the construction site, when I look in, when I peer through the fence, the deeper the hole, the taller I know they're going with the building. Because in order to build up, they first have to build down. And that work that happens under the surface where no one can see and all those details that are going on underneath, if the building is going to stand, all of that is important. And then he said this line. He said, the problem with us in the church today is that we have far too many Christians who are trying to build a skyscraper faith on a chicken coop foundation. That's a great line, isn't it? I wish I could come up with lines like that. The problem, he said, with a lot of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ is that we are trying to build skyscraper faith on a chicken coop foundation. And when we talk over the last few weeks, and right now we're in this series called How God Prepares People, we are talking about the foundational work that God does in our lives. Because many of us, we just pay attention to the huge stories, the big moments, And I think we're all prone to do that. So as we're going through the Bible, we pay attention to David and Goliath and Daniel and the lion's den and all the big moments that happen. But what we can often miss out on and ignore is all the work God's doing underground, behind the scenes, in people's lives. And if you and I want to be ready for the big moments where God's going to really use us and do something huge, the same thing has to happen in our lives. We have to, with God's help, dig down deep and build a foundation so that when it's time to do the big work, we can stand strong. Now, here's the deal. When we think about God using people for big things, big things, a lot of us immediately disqualify ourselves, don't we? A lot of us think to ourselves, yes, God is going to use people to do big things, but it's not going to be me. I'm here in church. I'm around this whole thing so that I can see the big things happen. I like to watch the big things happen. I like to hear the stories of the people who 13 years ago go to Eswatini, Africa, and all that God is doing. I like to hear the stories. I like to see the work. But if God's going to choose someone to do something big, it's 
going to be someone else. And part of the reason I think we disqualify ourselves is that there's a truth that you deal with in your life every single day. But here's the secret. It's a truth that I deal with in my life. And in fact, I would suggest to you there isn't a single person trying to follow God with their lives who isn't dealing with this reality. And it's one of the things that we use to disqualify ourselves from God using us in big moments. But here's the truth. All of us deal with this. And the thing that I'm talking about is the truth. That no matter who you are and no matter where you come from, and I deal with this too, all of us in some area of our lives feel like we are living out plan B for our lives. We had a picture of what life was going to be. We thought we knew exactly where it was going to take us. We knew exactly what job we were going to have. We knew exactly what school we were going to go to. We knew exactly the kind of person that we were going to marry. We had this life planned out for us. And for some of us, it's in different areas of life. But all of us somewhere in life feel like we are getting up in the morning and we are living out plan B. That we tried plan A, plan A didn't work out. And so now we're just dealing this reality of where we are. We plan to have a certain job. We plan to rise to a certain level. We plan to make a certain amount of money, but it just hasn't worked out that way. And every day when you get up and you get into the car or you get on that train or you walk onto that bus, you feel again like you are going to go out and not live out plan A. Plan A didn't work, but you are going to go live plan B. Or maybe you think about marriage and family and you had a plan and you were going to get married and it was going to be perfect and you were going to have 2.3 kids and 1.8 cars and 1.3 pets and you were going to live in the suburbs and the kind of houses that it seems like everybody on TV lives in. And it just hasn't worked out that way. Because you get up and you see your spouse and it feels, feels like plan B right now. It's not great. Your relationship with your kids isn't what you thought it would be. And maybe, maybe you're, you're still single and you didn't think that would be the plan. And so you're still dealing with plan B there. For some of us, it feels like plan C or D or E or R, right? But the truth is, no matter where you are, no matter where you come from, all of us feel like we're living out plan B somewhere in our life. That's the truth. And we look at other people and we see them and we're like, well, I wish I could be them because they're living out plan A and everything's worked out perfectly for them. But the truth is, behind the scenes, we don't know everything that's happening in people's hearts and in their lives. And no matter how good someone else's situation looks, the truth is, we're all dealing with this reality. And because we know the reality of our situation and how we got to the position that we are in, We talk about God using people for big things, but we immediately disqualify ourselves because we know. If God's going to use someone, he's going to use someone who's living out plan A perfectly in their life in every area, not someone like me. What I want to suggest to you this morning that I think is true, and we're going to look at the story of one particular person in Scripture, is that your position in life, no matter how you got there, Your position in your marriage, your position with family, your position as a single person, your position in your school or in your university, your position in your job, all of those things, no matter how you got here, there, and no matter how broken and messed up the path has been along that journey, your position in your life right now is part of God's preparation for you. That may be difficult to believe right now. 
as you think about where you are and the mistakes that you've made, the things that have been done to you that were not fair or right, it may be hard to believe that your position is somehow part of God's preparation in your life, but it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what plan you feel like you're living out right now. It's part of the preparation for God to use you. And to understand that more, we're going to look at the story of a woman named Esther this morning. And some of you might be familiar with the story of Esther. Some of you are going to hear it for the very first time. But there's really four characters that you need to know in the story of Esther. And if you want to turn in a Bible, if you have those Bibles in the chairs in front of you, we're on page 410. It's going to be tough to follow specific verses this morning because I'm going to tell you a lot of the story. And you're going to have to read it later and check your facts. But the story of Esther is the story of someone who was put in a particular position. It wasn't pretty how she got there but it was part of God's preparation for her life. There's four people you need to know in this story. And I'm going to ask you if you would just to repeat their names after me. Okay, the first person is King Xerxes. And here's the deal. You're going to look in your Bible and you're going to see a name. You're going to see King Ahasuerus. Okay, but as I just proved to you, I can't say that word. And so Xerxes is another appropriate name for this king, all right? In the annuals of history, you can call him either or. So just because I want to be able to pronounce it correctly, I'm going to say Xerxes. So King Xerxes, say Xerxes after me on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Excellent. That's the first person you need to know. Here's the second person you need to know. Her name is Esther. Say Esther. Esther. Excellent. The other person you need to know is Esther has a cousin who's very important in this story, and his name is Mordecai. Say Mordecai. 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 And the last person you need to know, this is the person we do not like. This is the bad guy in the story, and his name is Haman. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to say Haman. I just want you to boo. Can you do that for me real quick? All right. Haman. All right. Excellent. Good. You're into it. Here is the story of Esther. King Xerxes, he was the ruler over a kingdom named Persia called Persia. And the deal is, is that Esther and her people, Esther is a Jew, and Esther and her people are living under the rulership of the Persian king because a couple generations before Esther was born, her great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents were taken into captivity by a horrible nation known as Babylon, and they were terrible to the Jewish people, enslaving them and putting them in captivity, and a lot of bad things happened. If you're familiar with the stories in the book of Daniel, that's all happening during this time. Well, Persia takes over after Babylon, and slowly but surely, Persia begins to restore some liberties and freedom to the Jewish people, but it's still a bad situation. It's captivity, and Esther and her family are, fo- are living in a foreign land under captivity under this king. And Xerxes has a queen, and her name is Queen Vashti. And one night, Xerxes is doing what ancient kings would do, and he's holding a frat-like party, and he's drunk along with all of his friends. And it's not pretty, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's pretty. He's not doing what would be the right thing to do, but they're having a great time. And he calls on his queen, Queen Vashti, and he says, come, she is to come and to entertain the group that is here. And Vashti does something that is unthinkable in the day. The messenger comes and says, Queen Vashti, the king wants you to come with all his drunken buddies and entertain him. And she says, no. She'd be a hero in our culture today, not so much in that culture. And so she is not killed, the text tells us, but she disappears from the throne. And Xerxes is now on the search for a new queen. In the meantime, Esther 
is born and she begins to grow up and something terrible happens to her at a young age. Not only is she living in captivity in a foreign land, she's born into a difficult situation. Her parents die when she's very young and she is an orphan. She's blessed to have a cousin in her family named Mordecai who takes care of her, an older cousin who watches over her and makes sure she has everything that she needs. But Xerxes goes on this quest for a new king, a new queen, and this is what he tells his men. He says, go and find young, beautiful virgins in my kingdom and bring them into my kingdom, bring them into the castle, and we will begin training them to see who will be the next queen. This is a really terrible situation if you think about it. Here Esther is, she is vulnerable, she is young, and she is in a position where because of her looks alone, she is taken from the one family member that she knows and trusts and brought into the king's court. It's some sort of horrible ancient version of The Bachelor where the king just goes out and against their will grabs young women uh, who have never been with a man before and forces them into his court. And for an entire year, For an entire year, they go through training so that they might be ready to please the king. And then they all get one night to try and please the king. And whoever pleases the king the best is going to be the next queen. And the Bible is really nice about it and just uses these terms like pleasing the king. But we're mostly adults here. We pretty much know what's going on, right? It's not a good situation. If we were using modern day language, we would say that Esther was trafficked. Esther walks through this year-long process, and she's brought into the court. And here's what happens in chapter 2. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. That's Esther's cousin. And he was bringing up Hasadah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. Esther does well in this program, and it turns out that the king likes her the best, so he makes her the queen of his kingdom. Meanwhile, outside of the kingdom's walls, outside of the castle walls, Mordecai is hanging out in the court of the king because he's trying to understand what's happening to his cousin behind the castle walls. And while Mordecai is hanging out in the court, listen to what happens. Two of Xerxes' men plot to kill the king, and Mordecai overhears it. And he tattles on them. He tells the king what is going to happen, or he tells one of the king's messengers what's going to happen. And the king's life is spared, and these two men are killed. And the Bible says that that story of Mordecai Saving the king's life is written down in the book that chronicled the days of King Xerxes. That's important to remember. So back inside the castle walls, uh, Queen Esther has been made queen, but there's been another promotion. There's a man named Haman. You remember Haman? We don't like Haman. You booed him just about two seconds ago. Do you remember? Haman, there you go. Haman gets promoted to second in charge. He becomes vice president of the kingdom. And the king makes a decree that when Haman walks through the court, anyone in Haman's presence has to bow down and pay him homage. Well, here's the deal. Mordecai is hanging out in the court because he wants to know what's going on with Esther. And he's a good Jewish man. He's not bowing down to anybody unless it's God. So Haman walks through the court 
And everyone bows down except for this one defiant man who's standing. And Haman says, what is your problem? And he says, I am a Jewish man, and I am not going to bow down to anyone other than God. And Haman becomes enraged. And he tries to come up with a plan, not just to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jewish people living in the kingdom at the time. And he goes back to Xerxes, and he says, King, you want to know something? There is a group of people in your kingdom, and they defy your commands. They do not do what you say. You told everyone to bow down to me. They are refusing. What do you think we should do about the people who are living in your kingdom who don't listen to what you say and don't want to do what you want them to do? I think we should kill them. And Xerxes looks at Haman, his second in charge, and he says, you're right. If there's a group of people in my kingdom that are not obeying my commands, we should get rid of them. And this deal is signed into law. Mordecai hears about this, and he is incredibly upset. Because not only is he going to die, but all of his people are going to die. And that also includes the queen of the entire kingdom, Esther. Mordecai gets a message to Esther. And he says, listen, here's the deal. The king has just signed into law that all the Jews are supposed to be killed. And Esther, that includes you. Now, Esther hasn't told anyone that she's Jewish hasn't told the king, hasn't told anyone in the court. But Mordecai tells her it's going to happen. And look what Esther's response is in chapter 4 to Mordecai's request. Mordecai says, you need to do something. You need to get in front of the king. You need to tell him not to kill the Jewish people. You need to save your people. And Esther says to Mordecai this, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know That if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Here's what Esther basically says back to Mordecai. Mordecai, I know I'm the queen. But if you think I'm in any sort of position to do anything with any sort of power, you are wrong. See, Esther knows her path to this point. And her path is not one of Disney princess movies. That's not her path. Her path is one of captivity. Her path is one of... Uh, being an orphan. Her path is one of what I would call abuse as she's brought into the kingdom, into the castle, and made a queen. Her story is not one of power. Her story is not plan A. This is not how she planned it all out. This is not what she would have said as a little girl living with her parents under the rain in Persia that she wanted her life to turn out like. And in fact, it's been over 30 days, she tells Mordecai, since the king has even called for her. And if you go and see the king without being called for, except for getting hugely lucky and having the king extend his scepter, you are going to die. And she said, Mordecai, you look at me this enslaved, orphaned, broken-down person. And you think I'm going to have any power to do anything in front of the king? And Mordecai sends a message back. 
and says something that Esther needed to hear, and this morning you need to hear it too. Because you're looking at your position, and you are saying to yourself, God might do something through somebody, but he's not going to use me. I've spent too many years of my life living on my own for other people. I've been too many years on my li- of my life doing my own thing. I know the road. I know the brokenness I've walked through. I know the things that people did to me. I know the things that I've done. I know all the stories of how my family broke apart, of the divorce of the abuse, of the whatever it is that's in your path. I know the story of the financial decisions that I made. I know the story of how I cheated or how I got to where I am today. And there is no possible way that God would be able to do something significant through me because my position is one that's been gained through a broken road and not a perfect one. It's the same thing Esther says back to Mordecai. And Mordecai sends her a message that you and I need to hear as well. And he says this, verse 13 of chapter 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Who knows? whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's leave that verse up there for a while. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, your path may not be perfect, but you are there. You are the one who is uniquely positioned to be used in this situation. There isn't another Jewish person on the face of the earth at the time that is in that place who could speak into what is happening. And I bet in your life there is a place. And it might be your family. It might be your school. It might be your work. It might be your neighborhood where you are uniquely positioned. There isn't a single other person in the world that has the network you have. There isn't a single other person in the world that knows the people you know, goes the places you go, has the same connections online that you have. There isn't another person in the world that has the network you have. And we spend so much time asking God, God, would you send someone? Would you do something to make a difference in my family? Would you do something to make a difference at my school? Would you do something to make a difference at my job? And could it be that God would say back to you, who knows? Maybe that's why I put you there. you spending so much time waiting for someone else to show up. You're there. And we say, but but I'm the wrong person because I'm not smart enough and because of all the mistakes that I've made and all the the messed up situation that put me here. And and, and God would say, no, 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 no. You're there. And who knows what God wants to do through you. Esther goes into the king's throne room. It's a huge risk. He extends his scepter, and she must have let out a huge sigh of relief. She said to the king, she said, there's an edict out there. Oh, no, she said to the king, would you come to a banquet that I'm preparing? And I want you to come, and I want Haman to come, your second in charge. And the king says, of course, 
will come to the banquet that you will prepare. So she prepares a banquet, and they come to the banquet, and they have a good banquet, and at the very end, the king says, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And Esther says, I want you to come to a second banquet. I'm going to hold one more banquet. I need you to come, and I need Haman to come one more time. And they leave, and as they go out, Haman is still furious at Mordecai, still furious at Mordecai. And he starts to talk to people after this banquet, and he says, People don't even realize how great I am. In fact, I'm so important in this kingdom that when Queen Esther held a banquet, she only wanted two guests. She wanted the king and she wanted me. And this guy, Mordecai, has no idea how powerful I am. And he starts asking his friends and families, what should I do? And they said, you should make an example of Mordecai. And they built gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai from. Well, meanwhile, that night after the banquet, the king couldn't sleep. And Xerxes in his room, staring at the ceiling. And he says, come, bring the books about my kingdom and bring the books about my, my rule and read them to me. And they start reading the books and they get to this story. Do you remember the story of Mordecai and the court saving the king's life? They read this story and the king has never heard the story before. Or he forgot about it a long time ago. It's been years. And he said, did we ever honor this man? Did we ever do anything for this man who, who saved my life? And they said, no, we don't think we've done anything for him. And so the king calls in Haman, and get this, this is the best part of the story as far as I'm concerned. He calls in Haman, and he says, Haman, what should the king do for the man he delights to honor? And Haman thinks it's him. So Haman says, you should dress him in your own clothes. Put your crown on his head put him on the king's horse and parade him through the streets with someone shouting in front of the horse, this is what the king does for the man in whom, for whom he delights to honor. And what does the king say back to Haman? This had to be the worst message Haman ever received. That's a great idea, Haman. Go and do it for Mordecai. And so Haman, with this hatred in his heart for Mordecai already, dresses Mordecai in the king's robes, puts the king's crown on his head, puts him up on the king's horse, and he's the one who has to parade him through the streets, saying, this is what the king does for whom he delights to honor. And that whole time, he's just thinking about those 75-foot-high gallows and how he can't wait to see Mordecai hanging from those. The second banquet happens that night. Esther welcomes in the king, welcomes in Haman. And while they're eating, after they're eating, the king says, what do you want, Esther? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther says, here's the deal. My people, there's a man in your kingdom who has put a rule in place to kill my people. And the king is furious. He says, who is it? Who is the person that has done this? And like the star witness in a giant court case, Esther points her finger at Haman and says, him, he's the man. And the king takes Haman and hangs him on the same gallows he built for Mordecai and reverses the edict so that the Jewish people are saved. You know what's interesting about this story? Is there's one name in this book that doesn't exist. It's the only book in the Bible where this person is not mentioned by name. 
The person that's missing, and you're welcome to thumb through if you would like and take a look, the name that is never mentioned in this book, does anyone know? It's God. God never gets mentioned once by name in the book of Esther. But is there any doubt that God is the one doing all the work? You think about Esther, and you think about Mordecai, and you think about Haman, and you think about Xerxes. It's a different world. They didn't know what was happening. Esther, it's very clear in the text, doesn't know what's happening outside the city walls. She doesn't know that Haman's built gallows for Mordecai. She doesn't know that her, her cousin's life is necessarily in immediate danger. She doesn't know that, that this thing has happened where Mordecai saved the king's life. All these people, they don't know what's happening with one another in the midst of the story. We get the overview of the story, but the individual people in the story, they don't know how all of these pieces are coming together. And God, in his sovereignty and in his providence and in his grace and in his mercy, reaches down into this broken, messed up world and orders the pieces so that his people might be saved. But it requires a woman with a broken past to stand in her position and allow God to use her for God's purpose. And she can do that work because of the work that God has done. And I want you to know that wherever you find yourself in life, whatever position that you are in today, it may not be the job that you always dreamed of. It may not be the family situation that you always wanted. It may be that you are lonely right now and you are broken and depressed and so many things have happened to you that are not fair. You can do the work God's calling you to do in your position because of the work he's done. There is no more purposeful position in the history of the world than Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And how he got there wasn't pretty. He was unjustly accused. One of his best friends betrayed him. All of his friends left him when he was in a terrible situation. There was pain and there was, there was uh, suffering that happened. But yet he allowed God to use him in that position for great purpose. And because of the hope and because of the future that you and I have, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, through the work that Jesus Christ has done, you can do the work that God is calling you to do, not because your situation is perfect and not because you are great in yourself, but because God has done a work through Jesus Christ. And he wants to do a work in you. So I'm going to ask you this question. Why are you here? I don't mean in this church, your position in life. Why are you here? And when I ask that question, you're going to be tempted to think about the road that got you here. Well, I made this decision, and then this happened, and then that happened. I'm not th- no, no, not why did you get here, not how did you get here. Why are you where you are? With your network and your influence and your family and your people, what does God want to do through you? What's the purpose of your position? One quick story and then I'm done. There's a woman that used to attend Mount Hope who passed away a number of years ago now, a few years ago, and she's actually my, my wife's aunt. And some of you that have been around Mount Hope for a long time might know her. Her name was Ruth D'Agostino. And I'm not going to tell you anything that that she didn't tell the church herself before she passed away. But 
her situation was something I think is worth learning from. I won't get into all the details, but from about 15 or 16 years old as a teenager until she was in her 30s, Ruth was a very a severe alcoholic and drug addict. Years. She would tell stories, and in hindsight, sometimes we might laugh at them, but they weren't funny at the time, and there were multiple times that she would tell you she should have been gone from this earth. She got clean in her 30s, and here's what she could have done. She could have said, my past is so broken and messed up, and this position that I'm in in life is, is unusable by God. But she started doing medical billing for one doctor, and she started to minister and walk through addiction with other people that she would come in contact with who were struggling with addiction. And eventually the company began to grow, and her ministry began to grow, so much so that at one point there was a radio show called God Only Knows in the Boston area where people would call up and anonymously talk about their addictions and their struggles, and she would counsel them through it. And there was a ministry in our church called God Only Knows where people who were struggling with addiction would come together and would meet and support one another and grow together, and Ruth led all of that. And she passed away a few years ago, but her business is over 30 years old and is thriving. See, it doesn't matter how you got to where you are. God's grace and mercy can cover all of that. But you are where you are. And God has a purpose for you in that position. So why are you here? Not how did you get there. What does God have for you to do? I'm going to invite our worship team forward as we close this morning. I'd invite you, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes with me and just think about this for a moment. Some of you, some of you this morning know exactly why you are where you are. You look at the position that you are in and you know that God wants you to do something. He wants you to speak to your family members. He wants you to start counseling with your spouse. He wants you to reconcile with your children. He wants you to impact your classroom. He wants you to impact your workplace. And the only reason you haven't done it yet is because you feel like you are ill-prepared and ill-equipped, that you're the wrong person. But you're the one in the position to do it. So will you today trust that the work that God has done through Jesus Christ is enough for you to step forward in faith and do what he's calling you to do? And some of you, the situation is much less clear. You're still not sure what purpose God has for you in your position. I just want you to hear that there is hope this morning through Jesus Christ. That if you seek out God, God will make it clear how he wants to use you today. And so whether you're in a position of saying this morning, God, give me the courage to go and do what I know you want me to do, or God, what do you want me to do? Let's come before him in these moments and allow his spirit to speak to us. God, I pray that as we sing this morning, your Holy Spirit will be at work, that you will move inside of us. God, that you will lead us and guide us. And God, I thank you that you use us.
for your glory, no matter where we're from. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website, at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at M-T Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.